Ladies and gentlemen, we are live, coming to you from Matt Buchanan Studios, brought to you by me, Matt Buchanan. Follow us on Facebook and YouTube at Matt Buchanan Studios and Matt Buchanan Comedy. Check the episode description for links to all of my, as well as my guests' social media handles. Quaco Inc. is the official sponsor of the show. Quaco is also the official sponsor of my upcoming book release, entitled An Explanation for Life, the Universe, the Brain, the Mind, and Consciousness. Available soon from over 30,000 retailers in over 100 countries. Quaco is also the official sponsor of the hot new board game, 33 Degrees of Order and Chaos, coming soon exclusively to Amazon Prime. This is Laugh Therapy, and I am the Comedy Doctor. Stay happy and healthy, folks, and enjoy the episode. That was a clip from Dame's House, a good friend of mine and a great DJ. You can check him out on Instagram, and you can listen to the entire mix as well as others on SoundCloud at Dame's House. That's D-A-M-E-S dot house. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Matt Buchanan Studios. Here we are. Uh, This is the introductory episode. I'm going to talk to you a little bit about what to expect from Matt Buchanan Studios the types of projects that we'll be working on in the near future, and the overall premise and goal of the show here. It's a dual initiative and a few different fronts with an interest on science and comedy-related topics and those types of guests. Uh, this is a effort to continue my own personal interests and be able to dive deep into the realms of science and comedy with fellow comedians and fellow scientists. So a little bit of background on myself. I am a PhD neuroscientist, officially defending my PhD in April this year of 2020. And I am also a amateur comedian. I technically have been paid for some shows, but I, I would classify myself as an amateur comedian. I mostly, uh, perform in Ottawa, sometimes uh, in the GTA area in Oshawa, and when when I'm lucky, uh, I get to uh, combine my interests, and that, that's sort of what I'm doing here. Uh, I'm really happy that I'm able to pursue these things that I really enjoy, like science and comedy, and so that's what, what this is going to be all about, being able to discuss those things and hot topics in each of those areas. My 
comedy career started around the same time as my professional neuroscience career, I suppose. It officially started, hey, what's up, buddy? Cat just came in. He might hang out for a little bit. I officially started my neuroscience career in 2014. So I just finished my undergraduate and uh, that was in cognitive science. And then I entered into a master's program in neuroscience and then ultimately did what was called the direct entry PhD. And this is when you go from an undergraduate to a PhD and you skip the master's degree but the process involves applying through the master's program first and then being nominated into the PhD program. And so that officially started in 2014. So essentially I did this first year of what was then my master's, but then became year one of my PhD. And here I am and it's been a long time coming. I'm very excited to have completed everything that I've completed so far and all the work that I've been able to do all those different experiments. And I'll talk a little bit about that, but just to parallel with this, it's around the same time. Uh, my comedy career had started maybe a year or two before that in the, toward the end of my undergraduate in like year three year four, of my undergraduate. So I was, um, like 20 years old or so. And my buddy George Burnick, one of my best friends, he was doing comedy at the time as well here in Ottawa. And, you know, we'd be hanging out a lot and he knew that I was into comedy and knew that I was working on it. And so he sort of gave me that extra bit of push to get me out there and get me doing comedy on stage and introduced me to the clubs and the owners and the sign-up process of how that stuff works. And, you know, at the time, and so that was, that was great. That was the beginning of my comedy career. And uh, it also saw a couple year hiatus during my PhD for reasons of commitment to the science and everything else that I had going on. It's just, uh, there's periods when you're doing your PhD where you're working, you know, 70, 80 hours a week and you're in the lab and you're crunching data and you don't have time to do anything extracurricular. And I'm very happy though to have, uh, jump back into comedy <clears throat> pardon me in the last uh, year there and really getting you know full into it now like uh, doing as many shows as I can uh, every month within the limit of my time and now performing this podcast and YouTube show and social media broadcasting in order to showcase the other things that I'm interested in and be able to discuss things that I don't have time to do on stage or to get booked in a club so I can do this on my own time and it's something that fits much better you know for a scheduling point of view not that that matters to you but it's just uh, you know time management it's an important fucking skill to to acquire and to Keep that tight is something I've learned through my PhD, how to set time limits on things and to set specific dates, times, deadlines, sticking to them and, you know, just being disciplined. So to give a little introduction, I hope to 
elucidate some things about what it means to do a PhD in science and in general so that individuals might find it a little more demystified. It's not... Uh, well, it's, it's better to say what it is than what it's not. What it is basically is a five to four to five to six year. It depends if you go to Europe, you might do a PhD in three or four years. Most of the time, generally a PhD, I'd say on average is a five, six year commitment, which basically entails you being hired by a laboratory at a university or a hospital or a privatized research institute, which would be affiliated with an academic research institute, therefore being able to do the PhD and they hire you for that amount of time five six years and within that time you're expected to complete say on average five experiments primary experiments which you are the the lead author and the lead scientist on those projects under the supervision of a professor of the university who is also a scientist in my case, at least, in, in doing a PhD in neuroscience. If it was in English, then that person, you know, you would be doing a PhD in English, you would get hired to work under an English professor, probably, and you would have to write about that. But I don't know as much about that. So from a science point of view, this is how it would work. You get hired, you work in a lab, and you contribute there. And though you have those projects which you're a lead on, and then you have usually many other things which you're able to contribute to, which would generally be other people's projects. So there's most labs have several graduate students, graduate students being somebody enrolled in a master's or PhD degree who's been hired by that laboratory. And of all those graduate students, and then there's lots of undergraduate students, you know, second and third year volunteers and fourth year people who are doing their honors thesis in a lab. So there's all these ways that labs uh, establish students and then you might have lab managers and research assistants and people hired by the labs. So all those different projects that are going under going on under the lab head who is your supervisor, i.e. the professor or scientist who owns that lab at the university and you might get the opportunity as a graduate student to not only lead your projects which are a requisite of your PhD but also to contribute to other people's projects who are in your lab. And of course, this is a opportunity for everybody in this way because it's a part of the team building within the laboratory, but also it's a way for you to collaborate and work on different projects that might be somewhat outside of your interest. And it's a way to establish your publication record. So I'll take a second to talk about that briefly because Again, it's something that I believe is a bit mystified in the public community. The idea of what, like, what is a scientific publication? A scientific publication is what the result, it is the result of all of those experiments that I would do uh, during my PhD. So let's say I'm running five experiments over the course of five, six years. You then will hope to publish five, six papers uh, by the end of that. And you're, say, six by the time, you know, you're at the end that you will have published 
the results of those experiments. That's basically what you're doing. You know, like you would have done back in university or like you might have done even in high school, you're writing a paper about the introduction, the results, the methods, the conclusions, a discussion, etc. And you submit that to a scientific journal. And a scientific journal is a body who is governed by a team of scientists often formed in a business so they are profitable they are companies and they are often corporations and these scientists are serve as editors on the boards of these publications these journals and they review the work that you submit so if i complete an experiment and i want to submit it to a journal this journal has the opportunity to review my work and decide if it's suitable for their topics and the scope of what they do and then they if they decide that they like the paper from the editor's point of view they'll send it to a team of external scientists known as scientific reviewers this is the peer review process the process which your work as a scientist undergoes review by your scientist peers and they evaluate it, critique it, and tell you what was wrong with it, essentially, or potential faults in your methodology, and they ask you to fix things, and they ask you to confirm things, and basically it's your way of, uh, or, or the scientists in the scientific literature's way of preventing invalid results, or something that's been falsified, or just that it's kind of, it's the real safeguard against poor data and shitty science. So let's put it that way. And so you undergo this peer review process, you submit your papers to these journals, and hopefully they are accepted by those journals. Sometimes the journals don't accept them, and sometimes they don't accept them for different reasons, based on prestige, or if they don't necessarily fit the scope of what that journal is writing about at the time, or certain journals have certain issues of certain times of year, and you have to be within those topics to publish in those journals. So that's that. When you are publishing, you might have heard of something like the Journal of Nature, and there's another journal called Science, and there's a thousand other journals with similar names, and they're all ranked based on some scientific uh, criteria, you could say. It's like a social score, and that's actually something interesting that, that I want to talk about at some point is that you know, th there's been some discussion lately about how in China they're adapting this model, which was seen in like a Black Mirror episode, about people having a social score, kind of like having a credit score, and that that social score is uh, plays a role in your ability to partake in per participate in certain activities or go certain places or be admitted to certain events or that sort of thing and that this social rank will determine a lot of things for you so this is interesting because there's a lot of controversy about it 
and how that might be implemented or adapted or how we perceive the morality of this and the ethics of this in a Western society, even though it is happening in China. But to an academic crowd, we already employ these types of metrics and not social ranks, but ranks of science and science output. In other words, if you're a scientist who has a massive laboratory and you have tons of graduate students, PhDs, master's students, uh, postdoctoral fellows and RAs, and you're publishing lots of papers. In other words, you're conducting many, many experiments and you're submitting lots of the results of those experiments to scientists to review them and they are accepted into good papers. You establish that science clout, you know, you get science credit, you become more credible as a scientist, as you should, assuming that the work that you're doing is good. But of course, if it's being accepted into good journals, then you don't really need to assume it's good because it should have been verified by peer reviewed scientists. So it's a way that, you know, scientists are giving this credit via metrics of how much they're publishing. And there are other metrics such as what's something known as an impact factor, which is a measure of the success of a specific journal. So the impact is a measurement of a publication in a journal and how many times that's cited by another paper in another journal. So you know when you have to write an essay or you have to write a paper for any of your classes that you've ever taken and they say cite your work, reference your work. When you make reference to something and you put that in a work cited in your bibliography and you submit that to an actual scientific journal, those references are indexed. And once something receives a reference, it's counted as a credit, so to speak, toward the authors who produced the original document which was being referenced. It's a way of crediting their work. So a highly popular and successful paper will be cited regularly because it's important work and it's representative of what's happening. So if I'm writing a new paper, I might have say 50 to 100 references in that paper for other people's work because my work is based off of the work that other people has done in the past. I'm not reinventing everything that I'm doing. I'm just innovating. I'm applying a new technique or I'm applying a new approach or I'm filling a gap that was not previously addressed in the literature. But there's still lots of other work that's been done that is able to inform what I'm doing. And in order to respect and pay tribute to the people who did that work, we would make reference to them in a work cited. That becomes indexed by journals and metrics, and a highly cited paper becomes an important paper, and that reflects on the importance of the researcher. All of these things, including many other metrics, which I won't bother explaining now, contribute to a researcher's overall research metric, which you can find on there's a few different companies which is another funny thing is that these are generated by companies so there is private 
metrics they're owned by people and it's profitable for them so so that's another conversation but you can go to something called ResearchGate. ResearchGate.com. it's basically a social media platform for researchers and scientists there like that that's the easiest way to explain it that's exactly what it is um it's very different than something like LinkedIn. Like that's a very like professional type space. A lot of scientists and doctors and researchers are on LinkedIn and you know, they're on Instagram and they're on Facebook as well. But ResearchGate is very specific for people who publish. It's a place for you to write about the work that you're doing currently to index your own publications. It's kind of like an online CV again, in in that way as well, that it lists all of your current activities and your work and, if you're a professor of whatever university, it displays this. And, of course, it also displays your score to everybody else who's there and, like, how you're doing as a researcher. Now, a lot of researchers don't necessarily take this very seriously. Uh, it's not something that I think is really comes into play even in job hiring. But that's to say if if you have a low score because not everybody is even on ResearchGate. even if you're a very successful researcher you might not put yourself on those platforms and therefore people aren't going to think you're shit just because you're not there you have a low score but it plays the other way that if you have an insanely high score then people see that and they do respect that which is important um but it's it could be it's a disadvantage for those other people who don't do that, and so it's in this day and age, it's like you have to get out there and you have to get up there and and on there and kind of hack that. Uh, but it's a good way for new researchers like myself to find people who are very well established, and you can see like it, it's very informative, and you can see a lot of what happens in the statistics in terms of like. Well, it gives it gives you some what's called descriptive statistics. Like you can look at it and you know based on what score where somebody is on the spectrum of all the researchers on ResearchGate. That's basically what it'll do. And so you can see somebody who's in the top one percent of all the people on there, and and somebody who's in the top fifty percent, et cetera. So yeah, I don't know. That that was just a bit of a tangential side on the implementation of social metrics and social scores for individuals and the fact that it's already something that's happening in, in the scientific community um, but of all people to hold accountable i think scientists are important people to hold accountable uh, but how about something like that for politics wouldn't that be uh, wouldn't that be kind of nice if we had like a, a metric that we could not just for their fucking popularity or their clout but it was something about their actual personhood and they, and they had an actual score and that we could look at that and rely on that that would be that would be kind of interesting and it was like an open you know an open channel like research gate so that's yeah that's a bit about science that's that's kind of the whole idea that's the picture in a real quick nutshell well that that's what you do as a scientist you know and to become a scientist you finish an undergrad you do a master's you do a phd and then the PhD, like I said, that it basically what it is is you're working as a scientist for five or six years in a lab under the supervision of another well-established scientist. And they teach you stuff and you learn from them and you collaborate with other labs and other hospitals and the other students in the lab. And you acquire those skills. 
And by the end of it, you hope to acquire your own scientist position. Most, you know, people, the dream is that they get hired by a big company, like a pharmaceutical company, maybe. And then there are scientists there making lots of money developing drugs. Or they get hired by a university and they can become a professor. This is kind of one of my end goals is to, you know, be hired full time as a university so I can teach and do my own research and have my own laboratory. And it's stuff I can work on privately and on my own initiatives as well but you know that would just be it would be great to have that one day I really enjoy working with students I like running a classroom I like running experiments and doing the data and I like managing that aspect of a laboratory so yeah I hope to to see that going forward and I guess that's that's something I've been thinking a lot about recently as I've had to because I am going to be taking new positions soon toward the end of my PhD so that will be exciting but all things in mind I'm very happy with what I'm doing and I want to keep going with the the show and my comedy and and my science here in town and I am wary of moving and so lately I've been thinking you know I've been thinking a lot about what's what do I weigh into that decision of moving if is it worth moving for something that I'm already doing here. And, and that's really what I, it boiled down to after a, enough thought. I would only move if it was a spectacular, remarkable position for some like Ivy League school or something amazing out of the country because there's so much I can do and already am doing here in Ottawa. I'm already doing comedy, which is what I want to be doing. I'm already working as a neuroscientist, which is what I want to be doing. I'm making a podcast and a show, which is what I want to be doing. I get to do the things here that I want to do. I have friends here and family, and I, I enjoy where I am, all things considered. There's not many limits on exactly what I want to do that I can't do, with the exception maybe of acting, which I've been I've been getting a hankering for lately and, and thinking that would be very fun to try. But something like that, you know, it's I need a unique reason to move somewhere, some demand of the area which is not offered here. So if I, you know, receive something amazing and I have applied for some, you know, Ivy League type positions. If I were to get something like that, then fuck yeah, I'm out. I'm I'll go. I would be silly not to. That's uh, that's part of the dream. It doesn't mean I would abandon everything else that I'm doing, but I can do that for two years, four years, and I still have lots of time after that to keep doing whatever else I want to be doing. But I look forward to the opportunities that are provided by having a neuroscience PhD. It is a very exciting time to have a have that kind of a degree. I don't know the jobs that I'm looking for right now and that I'm seeing postings for. Are, it's like a, you know, it's like out of sci-fi. We get to work on brain stimulation and brain computer interfaces and neuroimaging and uh, those are the main things that I'm looking into because those are the main things that I'm specialized in in neuroscience and, and neuropsychiatry. It's from I'm very much a clinical neuroscientist uh, to make the distinction from most of my colleagues at the university work in animal neuroscience, um, doing like molecular and, and chemical based neuro and rat models or animal models. And we are one of the only labs there at the university that's strictly human based. And so we do all of our stuff in humans. Now we do, most of the students in our lab actually do 
human-based experimental cognitive neuroscience. And cognitive neuroscience is in the exploration of neuroscience, which focuses more on the cognitive processes and how the brain expresses these cognitive processes and manifests them. Whereas... And that's from like an experimental point of view. So you're you're asking more questions. You might ask things about imagination or emotion or, you know, how somebody responds to specific stimulus. Whereas clinical neuroscience, which is my focus specifically, is more on the medical applications of neuroscience and how we can use information about the brain to inform clinically the diagnosis prognosis and treatment of mental health and neurological disorders basically the whole suite of neuropsychiatry and neurology and this is the type of neuroscience that excites me the most i do really enjoy all aspects of it but this is what really excites me and that's why my phd was largely in a collaboration with the children's hospital of eastern ontario in the neuropsychiatry lab and my PhD in uh, neuroscience uh, through the Carleton University at the Neuroscience of Imagination, Cognition, and Emotion Research Lab. And so we got to do this collaboration and we did clinical neuroscience and we got to work with kids and we did brain stimulation studies and we did neuroimaging studies in twins and in uh, adults and we looked for new diagnostic measures and we looked for phenotypes which are like another i guess basically a fancy word for subtypes of diseases so like if you have depression there is different ways of that expressing itself in the brain and in different persons and those have subtypes you could call it a subtype which is like oh there's this variety there's this type of depression and that type of depression and you know one might be more anxious depression one might be more um, suffering style type of depression but at the end of the day these subtypes can be represented by neuropsychological and uh, neurological phenotypes and we can find behavioral phenotypes and or sorry we can find manifestations of behavioral phenotypes in brain imaging so using signals from the brain we can find specific areas and criteria within the brain which align with each subtype and this is, uh, for example, one of the amazing results that was published in the Journal of Nature, one of the best journals known, with one of the highest impact factors. And this was done by Dr. Connor Liston, a Canadian scientist, and partnered with uh, Dr. Jonathan Downer. They also published in The Lancet, which is a the Lancet Psychiatry, it's like a, the other top journal in the world. So two of the world's top journals, they, they published this in 2018, a couple papers where they showed using fMRI, functional magnetic resonance imaging, they identified four specific phenotypes or subtypes of depression. 
and they were all depressed individuals, which displayed a specific behavioral distinctions, but ultimately they all experienced the same underlying disorder. And what happened was they, through the fMRI, they were able to establish subtypes based on these behavioral phenotypes. Then they took it a step further, it got even better than that. They... So this was the major work of Connor Liston, Dr. Connor Liston. He did this fMRI stuff. And he took it then a step further with uh, Dr. Jonathan Downer, where they actually applied brain stimulation. And they found that there were specific brain stimulation protocols that would work better for treating depression when they were tailored to the specific subtypes, which they'd recently identified. And therefore, the neuroimaging directly related back to the treatment options and it informed the treatments. This is clinical neuroscience at the purest form. This is as is, is close as you can get. You're applying neuroimaging, you're linking that back to the subtypes, and then you're finding subtype treatments so that you're directly treating what that individual needs and, and what that type of syndrome requires. This was one of the initiatives of my PhD as well, was to combine neuroimaging with brain stimulation. And that's exactly why I was doing that. I used a different type of neuroimaging called electroencephalography. And this records the electrical output of the brain and it does so using electrodes which are sensors and these sensors pick up the electrical responses which are emitted from the cortex the top part of the brain and picked up on top of the scalp so you just place them on top of the head like if I could have electrodes embedded in these headphones and it could read some of my cortical activity if they were a medical grade electrode. Now, my goal was the same thing as Connor Liston and Jonathan Downer. I wanted to combine electroencephalography with brain stimulation in order to better inform the treatment protocols for individuals with specific subtypes of diseases. And so in all of the electroencephalographies that we did, we looked for subtypes among children who had various conditions like ADHD, uh, oppositional defiant disorder, conduct disorder, anxiety disorder, major depression. They had various conditions and we're trying to find if there were specific abnormalities in the electroencephalography, the EEG, which could inform the protocol, the treatment protocol for that child who might receive brain stimulation. And I'm just realizing now that I should have started by clarifying a little bit about brain stimulation that this is not the shit you see in movies this isn't a when i'm saying brain stimulation i'm not talking about some seizure causing event 
this is called well that a seizure causing stimulation like what you see in Hollywood and some of the movies which is drastically overplayed and shouldn't be demonstrated because it's very stigmatized in that way and that stimulation that's portrayed that way in movies is actually very useful for some people uh, as a treatment and it's highly stigmatized in movies and even that very severe stimulation is actually very safe and useful for many people in treating them and i yeah so i don't think of it as like a crazy thing first off that being said that stimulation is very safe and it's very intense and it's uh supposed to cause seizures that's how it works in terms of resetting the brain the type of stimulation that we're using is at two milliamps that's about eight thousand times less than this even it's a very low low current it's your cell phone battery provides more electricity than than this device does it's a very low amount of electric current but what happens is when you introduce this electric current a mild one into the brain it can change the membrane permeability what that means is your it can make an action potential more or less likely to fire depending on if you use a positive or negative electrical stimulation. And when an action potential fires, that's the activity of our brain. That's a neuron behaving. That's a neuron exhibiting action. It's, it's firing action potentials. So we can facilitate action potentials and therefore facilitate the activity of a specific brain region, which might be related to a specific disease this is again this is clinical neuroscience this is it you know we are taking an electrical sensor and detecting electrical activity from your brain and then we are learning how we can alter that electrical activity in order to correct potential abnormalities which have manifested due to individual proclivity for a specific mental health and neurological disorder. We are it's it's a step more toward a cure, let's say, than even a treatment. It is certainly only a treatment, but the idea is that it's you know we we want to get closer to curing things in this way than only treating them. So this is a lot about what my PhD was about, and hopefully through the course of many episodes I will talk at length and in depth about specifically all of the experiments that I've contributed to. I ran over five major experiments for my specific PhD, I've then participated in uh, a few other major experiments for my private work where I was a research director at a private medical clinic here in Ottawa. And I have participated in like at least, you know, half a dozen other projects at the university through collaborations uh, with other people and my, my supervisor as well. So I've had the chance to work on a lot of stuff and I'm excited to talk about each of them. And uh, I think one of the, the most exciting things and most topical right now is that of brain computer interfaces and what's happening with that in the field right now and 
in brief, a brain-computer interface is this is any connection between a brain and the computer, usually done via neuroimaging. So you use some neuroimaging tool like an electroencephalography or an fMRI, something that can take excuse me, something that can take a picture of the brain, an image of the brain, hence neuroimaging, and it can then transmit that signal, the image, the signal of the image to a computer, and then the computer can do something with that signal, such as execute a command, which is coded specifically to that brain signal. This is, uh, in a simple explanation, what a brain-computer interface is, but there's much levels to this. Uh, there is high levels of fidelity in some computer brain-computer interfaces, BCI for short, BCI. Also, some people call them brain-machine interfaces. Um, it doesn't fucking matter uh, <laughs> what, what it is. Sometimes terminology gets cloudy, but it's the same thing. So, in these BCIs, you know, it's it's a very fascinating time for what can happen with them uh, in the range of capabilities. There are very rudimentary BCIs uh, that have existed already for, I'd say, upwards of two decades. And technically, any neuroimaging is a type of BCI. It's just by virtue of connecting the brain to a computer and then we're processing the signals on a computer. That involves the brain-computer interaction. I guess what's lacking in the, in that exact example. Well, even fuck, there's still the interface. The interface would be the software that you're using to process that signal. The thing that is lacking, though, is I guess the execution of some command after the acquisition of the signal, and you know the idea of brain-computer interfaces from a medical point of view, from clinical neurosciences, you know, you could use it to motor, motorize a wheelchair. So you can control a wheelchair with your brain if, if you're paraplegic, for instance. Or you could, you know, just by sending signals, you, you can transpass, uh, trans I don't even know if that's a word, but what I'm trying to say is you could transmit signals past the spine to your legs, for instance, this might be possible. Uh, you can control a prosthetic arm, and then there's lots of military applications that they're interested in, and how they can use a brain to interface with a computer. And there's lots of consumer applications like video games. And indeed, there is already a company in 2020 right now that manufactures virtual reality devices which connect to your brain and there are games available on the app store where you can execute commands like doing magic or something like that with just thinking in the vr world that is i mean that's the shit that i'm i'm uh, once that comes around i'm gonna be 700 pounds and i'm never gonna be getting out of bed and I'm going to be living in there and I don't know if everyone else in the world's going to be on board with that but I don't know that's that's going to be a time but I'm fully ready to embrace this type of tech I don't know I think it's cool shit uh hopefully I won't die from obesity but you know we'll cross that bridge when it comes or I won't cross it because I'm going to be in bed in the VR world. We'll figure it out. You know. That's alright. 
the point is, this is already happening. There's already companies doing this. Motherfucker. Okay, give me a... You guys, give me a break here for one sec. I gotta make sure that this shit's still running fine on the camera. Alright, Jesus Christ, we're good to go. Um... So yeah, this is just supposed to be an introduction. I am always going to end up fucking talking way too much uh, about everything. And so, yeah, this is a good example of what to look forward to. Because that's exactly what to expect. Is that I'm going to start talking about something, think that I know where I'm going. And then uh, it just keeps going about um, neuroscience or comedy. That's at least what you can you can be confident about. That by the end of it... It's going to be about one of those two things, and you can keep me talking about that forever. I could keep myself talking about either of those things endlessly, so that's the way that is. There's going to be segments of the show where I'm going to talk about specific things. You know, I've got uh, I got some funny shit planned, just like stuff that I want to do in science segments, for example. Like, I'm going to look at hot topics. We'll review current literature, stuff that's, um, like, published that day, or I'll, I'll pull up. Uh, I'll find some interesting studies from that that's been published, you know, within a few weeks of whenever I'm recording the episode so that we're talking about something very new. And I hope that as I establish and, uh, and grow my audience, that individuals would write in and that they'll talk to me about stuff that they want to hear about. And then I can do my best to communicate to that, that to them. Uh, they might send me literature, or if you're specifically interested in a topic of BCIs, or if there's a type of uh, brain disease or mental health disorder that you're specifically interested in, you have questions about it, I would love for you to write those questions to me or uh, in, in my DM or uh, on Instagram or through uh, the Facebook page or wherever you want to contact me. Uh, that'd be great. I'm, I'm going to plug all those uh, specifically at the beginning and the end of the episode, you'll be able to find those and where to reach me. So yeah, there will be those kind of cool segments. Uh, that's for my personal episode. So what you're going to see, you're going to have some episodes where it's just me doing that. I'm going to be talking about science. I'm going to be talking about comedy, um, generally separately, sometimes together. And it's all under Matt Buchanan studios. It's not a separate podcast per se, but the topics are different and it's all going to be published there and it's all going to be recorded here by me and you can find both of them. They'll be there and that's what's going to happen. But I will also feature lots of guests and this is something I'm very excited for. We've actually, uh, we've had several guests uh, in already and we, I'm saying, you know, I'm the Royal, we, uh, as it is, or maybe I'm just thinking of the cat. It's us, you know. He, he's always involved. Lilo is also a host of this podcast. He will, <laughs> you'll see him around. He's in here, but I think he's. Well, he was actually just chilling on the table right there, but I don't think you could see him with this angle. Uh, that's kind of sad. You'll see him though. Lots. Uh, he, he's featured in uh, the episode with Janelle, and uh, at length he's there. He'll be around. Uh, as he is the co-host of the show, Lilo the Cat, uh, silver fur, cool guy, you know, he's like 12, so he's like fucking 50 in cat years, and uh, yeah, that's what's up. Now, the other thing, so we're, yeah, we're going to have guests on the show, 
scientists, professors, and we will talk about their research focus, so their expertise, just as when I'm talking about my science stuff, it's going to be generally within my expertise, and this is going to be really exciting. We're going to have lots of cool people chatting about uh, all kinds of hot topics in science right now, and for comedy, uh, the first series that's going on uh, that you'll see episodes of here, we have local, and I say comedy, but it, it is a little bit broadly in the art scene. It's just in general Ottawa arts, uh, so that would include musicians and, and music producers as well. But I'm uh, focusing on the comedy community with people who are producing comedy shows right now. So th there's a lot of comedians who produce their own show where they're at a bar in town, they're at a diner in town, or they're at the club in town. Uh, and that's where, you know, they host a show there. They organize comics, they get features, they get hosts, and they bring them in, and this is their show. Some of these shows run every week, some of them run once a month, some of them run right downtown. And everybody's probably aware of Absolute Comedy and Yuck Yucks, two of the best clubs uh, around, and... Uh, two of my favorite places ever to do comedy, but you might not be aware that there's at least 10 other good shows uh, that go on uh, in the Ottawa area produced by these individuals who I'll be having on my show. And we talk about their show, what they're doing with their show, how uh, they came about deciding to produce a show. Some of them have only been doing this for you know half a year. Some of them have been doing this for six, seven, ten years uh, for a long time. So there are, uh, there's going to be a broad range of everybody who's there, but I, my goal is to showcase all these people who are putting on and putting in this uh, amazing effort for the city and for the comedians in town to be able to go out and get stage time and go and watch, uh, have people come and watch their comedy. So we owe that to the producers, and so I'm having them all on, and, and we're going to talk about the shows that they produce and how they, what motivated them to do that, how they organize their show, you know, how many acts do they have on a typical show. Uh, generally, well, we'll get into it, you know, but there's a general model that seems to run in Ottawa for, for the way that it is here, and people have a misconception and by people I mean the public generally have a misconception of comedy especially if you've never actually been to a comedy club before if you've never been to a comedy club your perception of comedy is probably Netflix specials that's what you see on Netflix you you do an hour of comedy you're famous you're a celebrity the people who do those are veteran comedians you know they've been doing this a long time Ottawa has a very booming amateur, but also professional comedy scene. So the amateur comedy scene generally involves doing shorter sets. You're doing six to 12 minutes and paid comics. You know, you, you might be up there for 15, 20 minutes. And sometimes if you get booked for a weekend, you may be doing say 45 minutes and then you've got a, uh, a middle act doing 20 minutes and then an opener doing 15, 20 minutes and like your hosts and stuff. So like there's different structures to shows, right? And you go on a weekend show, you might get something different than what you see during the week. But the fact is there's comedy seven nights a week in Ottawa, seven nights a week, every day of the month, almost every single day of the year. And you can go to the comedy club, either of them, yuck yucks are absolute, and you're going to have a great time. You could go to 
one of the other many clubs and diners in town or, or bars, etc. We an indie show for uh, reference sake, we, we call it. And you're gonna have a great time there too. Uh, it's a different vibe though. It's a different type of show. And so I just encourage people to get out to comedy shows. If you've never been or if you don't go regularly or if you especially if you like comedy and you've never been or if you really do, just go out and enjoy it. It's it's support the arts scene, support the local community and, and the artists who are doing this and it'll really you know, it'll pay off. You'll enjoy it. Uh and it, it really means a lot to the people who are doing the shows. And the fact that there's so, so many shows really speaks to the demand for comedy in Ottawa right now. There's probably over a thousand people that go and watch comedy shows every single week in Ottawa. And that's all supported by the people who are putting in the effort to produce the shows and go out and provide their comedy, often for free in the amateur scene. And, you know, it's uh, only a small percent of people who get paid as comics. There's probably, you know... 150 active like fairly active comedians at least um, in Ottawa who are like amateurs maybe you know uh, 10% of them that get paid regularly and that's fine I mean that's all part of the game that's the way it goes uh, you get paid when you get recognized enough that you're good enough that's you know that's to be expected but yeah, I, I just I, I feel like there's a different there's a misconception between the public and you know what comedy is and what it isn't and, and if you go out to the clubs you'll really get to see it and through this podcast we'll get to you know discuss what that means and what comedy is and what uh, how these people the producers structure their shows whether they you know how much time everybody gets on the sets and uh, just talking about the venues so that you're aware of the shows and you might think oh okay well that's actually that's in my part of town that's great oh, I didn't know there was a show there well I'll go and catch that show and I hope that you'll do that and go and check that out or you know you might find out that there's a show at your favorite bar that you never knew about because it's a new show now and all these other diners and it's just a fun thing to do in town you know you're looking for a good date option you want something to do so it's going to be great to have all these people on. And there is that theme. And if, if you're a comedian and you're interested in ever starting your own show or you're a producer, hopefully it will inform your opinion and your uh, thought process on making those decisions. Um, and it'll give you some point of reference to, you know, have the advice of all these people who have already done it and, and been in that boat before, for, you know, how to make a successful show. And, Past that, uh, I aim to do the exact same thing with music producers, and that means um, definitely keen to talk to people who produce music, like make beats, make songs, make music, but I also mean like people who organize shows, because that's a very important role in town, and that's kind of what I'm doing with comedy, so there's people who organize shows at the bars around town and at the clubs around town, and they get bands to come in, and they have, you know, we, we want to talk about those things, like how do you do that, how do you approach the venues, how are you running the show, how do you promote the show, what kind of advertising do you do, do you have to pay the bands, do you have to pay your acts, like how, how much do you pay them, how do you go about that, and so this same thing, there's a lot of this uh, similarity between comedy and music and the, and the way that the art scene is run. And I would even really like to talk to the people who produce the art battles. So I don't know if you've ever been to an art battle, but that was one of the coolest fucking things I've ever been to in my, in my life. And like, that's a bit of an exaggeration. I, I've seen a lot of cool shit, but it was very, very unique. And I really enjoyed it. If you're a person who likes to watch art, uh, especially contemporary, like n new, 
I don't know if that's even the right word. I don't have art lingo, but I just like it a lot. I just mean like new stuff. There are people, live artists, who go there and like a rap battle, they're in front of everybody and they're painting and they're given a time limit. And you walk in a circle around them. So there, when I went, there must have been 200 people. It was a great turnout. So there was probably, you know, maybe, yeah, 150 to 200 people, like, in the audience, so to speak. But the audience was dynamic. It's like, picture a big room, like a warehouse that you're in. You're in this warehouse thing, and then there's, like, four easels or six easels. Is that how you'd say it, I think? And they're, and they're in the center of the room. And then there's a bar over here and there, and there's a DJ and shit. They're playing music. It's a nice vibe. It's, it's a tight venue and, and feel to it. And then everybody kind of walks in a circle, like a big but very slow circle pit around the the art, uh, the art artists in the middle who are live painting uh, or drawing or whatever the thing is. It generally, I believe it was some painter drawing oriented. And they produce an amazing piece and you get to watch that process unfold you get to see that happen as it's going on they're making the piece right in front of you and you know as you're walking around you might do a full circle in a minute so then so let's say they're painting for 15 minutes you know you, you get around and you see you know, 10 to 15 different stages of that process. And you know, like, oh, what the fuck are they drawing right now? What are, you don't know what they're doing yet. And then you get back to them three minutes later and you kind of see where they're going with it. And then nine minutes later and they finally, it's amazing. It was really, really cool. And, and the battle point is that you're also given like, you know, little ballots, right? So you walk around, you, you choose who you like best the whole, the whole time. And then, they do round one and everybody paints and you walk around, bang, you, you ballot at the end, a couple people win, they move on to round two, and I think it was like three rounds, so it's like round one, and then another round goes with a whole new set of artists, and then those winners faced off, like the top two from each one, so there's probably maybe like ten artists in the whole thing, if it was probably like four and four, and then, or five and five or something like that. Very, very cool. And they're very talented artists. They must have some criteria to get into these battles because they weren't just like anybody, you know. It's And just like when you get to the fucking comedy shows and, and these bands, like they're not just nobody. They're a band who's already doing well enough that they're booking a show. They're a comedy who's already, or a comedian who's already doing well enough that they're there. They're an amateur comedian, but they're getting booked at a club to do a show. That's... <laughs> You know what I mean? It's going to be, you know, it's going to be decent. It's not going to be the best comedy. It's not a Netflix special. Shout out to myself and my own shit that I made and my own comedy, stand-up comedy short film called Not a Netflix Special. It's not. It's it's super not. It's, the, it's totally not a Netflix special. But it's still stand-up comedy, and you can go and watch it, and it's on Instagram TV, and it's on YouTube, and it's funny as fuck, and it's a lot of my best shit, and it's a, well, just like a bunch of jokes that I, I put together at a few shows that I did in a row. I had three shows in a row, and I was like, you know what, I'm going to record all these, and then I'm going to mash them up, and it worked out pretty well, and I was happy with it, and there you can go watch that shit. So, yeah, it's, I'm going to have on... These art battle people too, I hope. I'm going to reach out to them. I haven't reached out to them yet, but these are I want to have them on and talk to them. And, and anybody who produces that type of show in town, so that you're aware of it and you know that's going on right here in Ottawa. You know, we glorify 
places like New York and LA and some people like Toronto and this and that. And I love Toronto too, but it's like they glorify it as if it's not happening right here too. And it is all of that's going on here in Ottawa and it's banging. It's popping. It's a good time to be alive. It's a nice city. Shit is happening here and it's fun and there's a lot to do. And I don't know. I want to showcase that. So that's the motivation for me and for, for this show and for this episode. And I also want to do the same thing for all the scientists in town. There is some amazing stuff happening all the time on campus. Like literally when we do some of these, there's like a, a three or four conferences I go to on campus in Ottawa, like on um, Carleton campus or via Ottawa U at the Royal campus or something every year. And holy shit, this, like, the stuff that people are doing right here in the city, so close, like, literally on campus, too, like, it might be in, this, like, the same building as me, is insane, it's amazing, it's truly, like, I I know I was talking shit earlier about, you know, if I get an Ivy League type offer, like, we're doing Ivy League caliber stuff out here, too, really, it's, it's a cloud thing out there, and this and that, but we're doing that stuff here, you know, it's pretty amazing, so... Uh, it's just we don't have as much funding and as much money as they get out there and so the scale is a bit different you know but as far as the novelty and the level of execution and productivity that we have going on and the caliber of the scientists themselves like we are extremely competitive and by we i mean just all the talented scientists uh, in ottawa so through each of these avenues i'm gonna enjoy talking about science having scientist guests and having comedian guests and the producers and all of these people from the art scene that is what you can expect from this show that's my goal uh i aim to bring on really fun people for you to hear from and learn from and i am very open to collaboration and other people who are interested in making shows or being on the show and I'm very into cross-promotional stuff. Uh, my effort in all this is to promote everybody who is doing all of these things. I want to advertise at, at length just by talking about them, uh, all of the shows and all of the art that's happening in Ottawa and the stuff that I myself love to participate in as a comedian and as a scientist and as an audience member for all of these things. I love attending lectures in town. There's so many lectures in town that you've probably you're probably not aware of that you would really enjoy going to and i know some of my scientist colleagues are fairly aware of the lectures that go on in town but there's a lot of but a lot of them are open to the public Um, they're not very publicly advertised and that's not because we don't want you to come it's just because they don't have a marketing team for public lectures you know like some groups do it like for instance i'm doing a talk with I think they're Let's Talk Science. It's like the Science Cafe or something like that. They they organize one or a few talks a month, but it's always the same day. So I think like myself and two other speakers, everybody does like 20, 30 minutes and it's at at a bar. It's uh they pick like a new bar or a new cafe once a month. And that's, you know, that's a cool one that's marketed a bit, I'm, I'm guessing. You know, I see it mostly through school, but it's it's a goal to engage the public with science. And 
uh, I was very excited that they, they reached out to have me as a speaker for that. And, uh, yeah, it means a lot. It's really cool that I've been able to get to, yeah, have the opportunity to speak and, and sort of grow my own, uh, expertise here in Ottawa and spread what I do and my knowledge to other people who are interested in those avenues, even other doctors who have their own expertise, but that's something else you'll find out, uh, through the course of this is that neurosciences and all of the sciences like doing a phd is a very and highly specialized thing and that means that although i'm a neuroscientist i am not fluent in all of everything about neuroscience there is way too much to know it's not like that it doesn't work that way you know um but you know, we we are very good at the things we are good at. That's how it works, is you get very specialized in a certain thing. And people make their career and spend, you know, a whole career focused on specific brain region or a specific protein or a specific chemical or a specific technique. And they become the best at that thing. And that's very exciting. And that's, you know, I am very specialized in a few certain things and that's you know the things ideally uh, that I'm very interested in and I've been lucky to have the opportunity to professionally work on stuff that I actually have a passion for and and love and this is my pursuit for comedy as well I'm just doing what I'm doing and trying to get out there and be on stage and uh, make stuff that makes people laugh and you know establish myself more in that way too like um i certainly don't have a phd in comedy you know i spent not quite as much time on it uh, that is but the longer you do the the better it goes and it's just fun at the end of the day i mean it, it is ultimately a hobby i guess it's like my favorite hobby and i'm happy to spend lots of time on it but shit it's fun man just being on stage and doing what i'm doing right now talking to you guys and making a making a commentary on on life and my interests and all the stuff that's going on so this is it uh i look forward to making a lot more a lot more episodes with you guys and for you and to hear from you i would love for you to write in and express interest in topics that you would like to hear about from myself in the neuroscience point of view and if you have comedy topics, that too, for sure. I love hearing about new comedians. If you have uh, comics that you'd like to share and tell me about and, and tell the group about, uh, we'll be doing some segments that involve that. And uh, there will be some other, well, you, you'll see when it comes up when, when we do the, the first official of the comedy episodes. This is the, let's call it just the Matt Buchanan Studio introduction episode because we're introducing you to Matt Buchanan studios matt underscore comedy and the science side buchanan neuro so you can follow me on twitter at buchanan neuro or at matt underscore comedy and you can follow me on instagram at matt underscore comedy and find me on facebook and youtube at matt buchanan studios and matt buchanan comedy so under my matt buchanan comedy you can find you search that you google it you youtube it facebook you'll find the youtube and facebook you'll find everything related to my comedy posts and the matt buchanan studios page is just where you can find everything so if you want to find my comedy if you want to find anything that i've been producing or that i'm working on including all the science the comedy 
uh, audio papers, lectures, all that stuff is going to be produced and published by Matt Buchanan Studios. And you can find that on the Matt Buchanan Studios Facebook page or the Matt Buchanan Studios YouTube. It's all there. And that's it. So I hope you can find me and feel free to drop me a line. I would love to hear from you and really interested in what everybody has to say and, and your opinion and engagement from this podcast. That's what I hope to gain and receiving lots from the audience so that we can have some back and forth. We can establish a rapport. We can work on some stuff together and uh, it would be cool to do some live shit uh, at some point. Uh, but right now I'm very happy with this and I look forward to what's to come. Take care, everybody.